So Dan, I think question probably on everyone's lips. Did you make it to yoga and how was it? I did. I went on last Wednesday night. It was lovely. It was really, really good. Hour and a half session back with my old yoga teacher in the studio where he's done it. It was super nice. Yeah, kind of different to be around that many people, I guess. But yeah, it was kind of an easy one to ease me back in. I think he was quite kind to me. wasn't too ambitious. <laughs> but yeah, really, hopefully back in the swing now. Once I've done it a few more times, I'll be confident in saying I'm back in the swing. But yeah, enjoyed it. And an hour and a half, that's quite an extended session. But actually, I'm just picturing because I've done yoga and... If I do it completely on my own, I probably only manage about half an hour. If I do it in a class, I manage about an hour. And actually, the difference between half an hour and an hour is huge in the way that you mentally approach it. But an hour and a half. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I would never manage that much by myself, for sure. I wouldn't get close to it. He does do quite a nice long, like, shavasana kind of relaxation at the end. That's the bit where you can sleep, right? Well, someone did fall asleep and there was quite heavy snoring going on. I was really worried that was going to be me. Luckily, it wasn't me, don't think, unless I was dreaming. So I kept my eyes open deliberately just so that wouldn't happen because, yeah, I was a bit worried that that might happen to me. Nice, nice. Mary, we were just chatting before we went on air. You're busy packing right now. That's right. So I am off skiing. By the time this goes out, fingers crossed, as long as nothing goes wrong, I'll be on the slopes going to Wengen in Switzerland, booked it when France was closed. Obviously, France is now open again, but it's a place I've not skied before. So yeah, looking forward to it. That's great. That's so lovely. How long has it been? It's been a couple of years since you last got on the slopes? Yeah, that's right. So I went in Feb 2020, felt very lucky that we'd gone fairly early in that season and got in there before. Obviously, I know lots of people's ski trips were disrupted that year. You flew back or came back just as things were closing, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. I can remember sitting in the hotel room in the ski slopes, looking at all the early data from the Italian resorts and stuff and just wondering what on earth was going on. So we just got hours in just before things closed down as well. Yeah. Nice. So yeah, I'm hoping when we go to pack at lunchtime that we can find everything. But yeah, we shall see. It's not the end of the world, is it? If you can't find a certain top or that sort of thing. As long as I can find my boots and my snowboard, then I can wear anything and I'll be fine. (laughs) You need all your trendy gear, don't you? For those Apro beers, you want to look cool in there. This is it. And I feel a lot of pressure as a snowboarder as well, that people are like, think you're going to be really into the gear. So I keep thinking I'm due a new set, but really I'm not. It's absolutely fine. Cool. All right. Well, good luck finding all your gear and good luck, obviously, with the travel and everything. Here's hoping you make it there. Thank you. Yeah, looking forward to it. On with the show. On with the show. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers, and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Well, hi, everyone. Today, we are talking about consumer financial engagement. That's policy, that's nudges, that's regulation, the whole lot. Delighted to be speaking to someone who knows an awful lot about that. That's Tom McPhail, who is the Director of Public Affairs at financial research consultancy, The Lancat. Tom, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Tom, I'm really intrigued. First question from me. Director of Public Affairs, what does that mean? That is a really good question, and I'm still trying to work that out. So I did quite a lot of political 
regulatory engagement work at my previous job at Hargreaves Lansdowne and the Lancat, the business I now work for, a lovely bunch of people. They wanted someone who had some experience at political engagement, at lobbying, but also around messaging. And so I've really enjoyed over the last few years living in that kind of bit in the Venn diagram that sits between PR and political engagement and how you help businesses to connect effectively with their stakeholders and to deliver messages and research and insights that will help businesses to achieve their goals. That's kind of what I'm doing now for the Lancat and where I used to do it in-house for Hargreaves Lansdowne, I'm now doing it for clients of the Lancat. Fantastic. And we'll get into both your experience in your current role, but also the Hargreaves Lansdowne insights that you can bring us as well. Looking forward to that. Tom, before we get started properly, why don't you let us know one thing we should know about you that we won't find on your LinkedIn profile? You were kind enough to forewarn me about this question, so I've reflected (laughs) on it a bit. Okay, I'll give you one. So back in the 1980s and my late teens, I found myself working on a cattle farm in outback Queensland, which is not a sort of linear path into financial services and pensions. One of my proudest achievements at the time, and I'm pleased to say I've moved on from there now and I tried to lead a fairly healthy lifestyle, but I mastered the really important art of being able to roll a cigarette one-handed whilst riding a horse. (laughs) (laughs) And at the time, that felt like, okay, I've arrived in a cool place. Ultimate cool. That was a long time ago. Not to glorify that sort of skill, but that is pretty cool. (laughs) So there we are. (laughs) But you won't find that on my CV. No, no. Probably not even on YouTube or something because it wouldn't have been around at that time. (laughs) You wouldn't even have to tweet about it. No, no, no smartphones, none of that. So, but it was a good time. I'm really glad that I spent the time out there doing that. I actually learned quite a lot from Australian farmers about not complaining and getting on with stuff and focusing on the task in hand. Some relevant and useful skills there, I feel. Fantastic. It's amazing how often people go back to the skills or the experiences they had in their teens, in their late teens, when they come up with their non-CV item, I suppose, because a lot of the rest of it is on your CV. No, the rest is just That's why we're talking to you. So (laughs) the rest will come out through the episode. Should we get stuck in then? So, so many insights that I'm sure you can bring to this episode. And I guess thinking about some of the roles that you've been in, in relation to individual investors, whether that's their own sort of spare money sort of thing, or whether that's through any sort of pension arrangement. What's your view on the culture in the UK in relation to investing? Do we have an investor culture or are we still a long way from that? Should we have one? I think it's a really important question. And I think it is coming. I'm also kind of wary of generalizations because in lots of different ways, we have a genuinely very diverse population. So we've got around sort of 65 million people living in this country, but the lives those people lead are not homogenous. And the lives people lead in Cornwall and in Hull and in Tunbridge Wells and in Conwy are all very, very different to each other. And the spectrum of jobs and experiences people have is really, really broad. And I think it's just important to keep that in mind. So acknowledging that, reverting to now speaking generalizations, I think it's also interesting to look at where we've come from. And I was looking at an LCP report the other day that your colleague Steve Webb had kind of passed on to me, looking at kind of defined benefit pension payouts and thinking back to where we were in the sort of 60s and 70s when pretty much half the workforce was in a defined benefit pension. And that was that. And that was pretty much all you needed to know. And sales of things like unit trusts were very peripheral. Hardly anyone invested in packaged investment products. If you wanted to save money, you put money in the bank and hardly anyone had shares. 
that really important decade of the 1980s where we went through all the council house sales and all of a sudden home ownership became a thing in the way that it hadn't previously. I think that was really important. And we started then in the 1980s to see the decline of divided benefit pensions. And by the time you fast forward to around 2000 in the private sector, it's collapsing around our ears. So there was that. But then also you had all the privatizations that went through the 1980s. And for the first time, you had millions of ordinary people who'd never owned shares before buying into that shareholder democracy thing, that shareholder capitalism thing that had never really existed before. So you can't underestimate how important that shift was. But I'm also really conscious things take time to play through. And I was just talking about working my teens. Well, that was back in the 1980s. That's like quite a long time ago now. But also bear in mind that I was being brought up by people who had been born around the time of the Second World War. I was brought up by people whose experiences, whose own childhood takes them back to the First World War. And so those cultural experiences and the influences that we have, they take time to shift and to play through. And I have children who, our older children grew up with the internet, and then our younger children grew up with smartphones. And so things shift, but they take time to play through. So I think you've got to keep all that in mind. We are definitely on a journey coming back to investments. That decline of DB, which I think is so important, has created an environment now, a context where whether we like it or not, we have to take responsibility for our own finances and our own investment outcomes. And we're still playing catch up with that. And people are still adapting to that and their experiences. Anyway, I've just rattled on a bit, so I'm just going to pause. So many great points there. And I'm sure those Australian farmers had pretty good DB pensions back in the day. I'm not quite sure about that. But anyway, you said there, whether we like it or not sort of thing. And maybe that is important in what you're saying there, I think, in that I often find that the decline of DB can be portrayed negatively. And maybe it's just the optimist in me. I try and flip it around and say, well, look at all this opportunity, the responsibility that we have, the investor culture that we can now create. But is your point that we've sort of stumbled into that a little bit without maybe it being intentional and it's, that's creating issues? It certainly feels like that a bit to me. I mean, what you had was the employers in the 1990s looking at those escalating liabilities, looking at the demographics, looking at the investment returns and going, whoa, okay, you know, we need to do something here. Whether anyone else liked it or not, I mean, look, we're still watching in real time the play out between, on the university superannuation scheme. So that conflict between members and employers is still playing out in some quarters. But whether the members liked it or not, whether the government liked it or not, whether broader social policy liked it or not, this is what the employers chose to do. And also, interestingly, you can trace a line back to the 1995 Pensions Act, and that brought in some really important provisions and protections for members in terms of vesting rights. And it was all done with the best of intentions to protect the members. But that also catalyzed the closure of the schemes because the employers looked at what they were now being asked to sign up to and to pay for, which is perhaps not what they'd originally agreed to, and was also perhaps a function of increased mobility in the workforce. If you've got a workforce that is largely unionized and manufacturing and not particularly mobile, a DB pension can make more sense, particularly if your staff will also then only live for a few years after retirement. But if your staff loyalty is eroded and people are choosing to move jobs more frequently and move around the country more frequently and communities are becoming more fragmented, the logic for an employer in maintaining a DB pension is also undermined. So there's that factor as well. Whether we like it or not, this is where we ended up. And the consequence is we kind of have to take responsibility for our own savings and investments. 
when Dan did the sort of intro line, he talked about individual investor engagement. And of course, there's different angles to that engagement. And there's the almost the sort of push pull you've got. Individual investors should be interested because this is their future fortunes, effectively, that are at stake, whether it's in a pension scheme that they feel not very much engagement with, they clearly should be engaging with it. But then, of course, there's the level of support that's offered to those investors if they need help, but also to nudge them in the right direction or to nudge them to have the knowledge to engage properly with it. Where do you see that balance sitting in terms of the current state of the market? Do both sides need to up their game or is one side kind of ready and raring and the other side letting the other side down? I find it really interesting that at one level we go, well, let's just let the free market do its thing. But then at another level, we also very quickly recognize that human beings don't necessarily always act rationally. And one of the single most effective policy interventions of the last 20 years in any field, never mind in financial services, has been the auto-enrollment program, which was a recognition that for all that people kind of should save for their retirement, they weren't doing it. And indeed, very often people were not even joining non-contributory pension schemes. It's like, you know, what are you doing? Well, because we're just more concerned about our kids' education and whether we've got food in the fridge and that kind of thing. So you need to have the default membership. But I'm also really interested in how much further it goes, because you can just look at how many other ways we've had to build defaults around that. So things like the governance committees, you need trustee bodies or you need IGCs on contract-based pensions. It's not enough just to let members take control of their own investments. We need a third party overseeing it for them because, again, people aren't busy looking at that on a daily basis. We've got price caps. We've got retirement pathways to help them make investment choices as they move into retirement. We've got the FCA worried about people holding too much money in cash. We had people not shopping around to buy annuities, so we had to introduce nudges there. The list goes on and on and on. There are so many ways in which we find policymakers or regulators have to take steps to steer people in a particular direction and nudge them in a particular direction. But then you come back to that point that I made earlier on about the diversity and complexity of people's lives. I think it is also really hard. You can use defaults and automated solutions to some extent, like putting everyone should save retirement. So let's just stick everyone in a pension and give them a default contribution rate. And that's undeniably a good thing. But there are so many other ways in which people's lives are complex that you can't just use those default and automations. You still have to work on the engagement and people making choices of their own as they go along. So then you need the communication and the engagement. And that actually is much, much harder. And where in your experience are people going for this advice? I mean, we've had just for context episodes where we've talked before about TikTok. There's quite a lot of advice on TikTok, some of it good, some of yeah, it bad. Yeah, you want to buy cryptocurrency to understand that? Buy cryptos. The <laughs> there's actually quite a lot on sensible passive investing as well, okay, just okay. to add. So there's not knock it all. There's the down the pub, there's the my uncle, there's the my mate sort of thing. Where do you think people are in terms of getting advice on these investments? I'm trying to be optimistic about this and I'm really interested. I mean, we had the financial advice market review a few years ago from the FCA, which I felt came up a bit short in creating an environment that would really allow the financial services industry to roll out and meet people halfway in giving them the guidance and the steers that they need to achieve good things. However, we do have the money and pension service and we do have a whole host of commercial solutions. There are businesses like Money Alive that does videos and box sets and tools to help people understand the decisions they've got to make. You've got a business called 
Guide, spelt with two I's in the middle, G-U-I-I-D-E. I have no relationship with any of these businesses. It's just companies that come across that I think are doing good stuff. You've got M&G that's just invested in Money Farm. You've got Tilney Best Invest, who've just rolled out a sort of reinvented hybrid advice model. There are lots of solutions going on out there. I think one of the risks with a lot of them is that they're talking to a lot of the same constituency, people who've got a bit of money to save and invest. The big gap is the millions and millions of people who don't even have £100 in the bank, who have much more basic financial needs that are really not being addressed. And that's to some degree when the money and pension service comes in. But there's a huge amount more that needs to be done with very basic financial capability before people get to the kind of businesses I was talking about, the people who've managed to build up a bit of capital or have got some spare income to invest. We'll come back to the money and pension service very soon, but I'm quite interested as you listed off a number of different companies and I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of an uneducated in in respect of investment person who's got less than £100 in the bank account and happens to have been put in this DC pension pot and isn't really sure where to start. And then they've got eight different companies they could approach for guidance. Do you think having lots of different companies is a good thing because then they can cater to different types of personality? for want of a better description? Or do you actually think that some sort of consolidation long-term will be the right answer so that there's a very simple first sort of port of call for these people? My my instinct is to gravitate towards the former solution that if you just let the free market do its thing and let the flowers bloom, some businesses will die and others will prosper and the market finds good solutions. But it is messy and it is slightly haphazard, but that's the way things work. I think we've touched on maps already. I think it's good to have that state system, state, your centrally funded solution that's non-profit. But I also think it's good to let these other bits... And this is how remarkable things like Uber emerge out of almost out of nowhere and i love the example of uber and i know it's had a slightly rocky path since it was first invented but the moment someone came up with the idea of uber it was a bit like evolution as soon as you get the idea you go oh well that's obvious why didn't everybody think of that but until someone had come up with the idea of uber it wasn't obvious and so i think you've got to let the free market do its thing in that respect and come up with the clever solutions and thumbprint logins for your banking app and that kind of stuff it's oh great i don't have to remember passwords anymore well that makes things more accessible i'm grasping for an analogy there in sort of other areas of life where we routinely rely on advisors for kind of big ticket advice. I suppose car mechanic is one example, probably not quite as meaningful, maybe buying car purchases, I guess, often dealing with salespeople there, dentist, maybe that sort of stuff. I don't know. Do you think there's any parallels or am I just barking up the wrong tree there? My children probably wouldn't be enthusiastic about me doing their dentistry for them. I think that's a <laughs> safe assumption. But I think part of the problem with the financial services and saving and investing and should I take out some insurance to cover my family and all that kind of basic stuff that just builds people's financial resilience is still really unfamiliar to a lot of people and they're not entirely sure who to turn to and who to trust. And I think one of my frustrations with the FCA over the years has been their failure to make a more effective distinction between the good guys and the bad guys. And you take the example of the British Steel Pension Scheme recently, where hundreds of steel workers were given really pretty shoddy advice to move their money out of defined benefit pensions into DC pensions, which were, in some cases, just outright scams. And there are plenty of other examples. And I think the FCA has got better at that and is moving faster now. But I would like to have a world where if someone is willing to 
take out some insurance to protect their children or wants to start putting some money into an ISA to help them with their first house purchase or whatever it might be. It would be abundantly clear who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. And that perimeter, I think, is still a bit blurred at times. We mentioned crypto investing, investing in inverted commas, I think, for some people. NFTs apparently are the place to go now for the really cool investments. Crypto is a 2021 thing, I guess. The NFTs was as well, I suppose. But shall we talk about maps? So you mentioned maps. That is the money and pension service, just to do that sort of jargon bust, but it's much easier to say maps. So that's what we'll use from now on. So Tom, you did a review, I think it was last year, wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. Of maps. Which I found really interesting. And I don't know how many of your listeners, if any, work or have worked inside the public sector. This was my first and to date only experience of actually working within the government machine. And I was doing it on a freelance basis, but I was working with a team from the DWP and they were helping me to write the report. And I found that in itself was quite an interesting experience, drawing some of the, seeing some of the differences between how the public and the private sector operate. It was an enormous amount of fun. I was really pleased to do it. I had really good access to all the senior team at the Money and Pension Service. And I went in and looked at basically how effectively they were using the public money that had been given. They get a budget of around £175 million a year. They employ several hundred people. I saw that in the report. I was quite surprised to see they employed as many as 400 people and a budget of £700 million. That makes them, if it was a commercial organisation, pretty sizable organisation, similar-ish to LCP or somewhere we work sort of thing. So it's kind of quite a lot of resource there. No, it is. And huge responsibilities. I mean, they are doing a huge amount on debt advice is probably the core thing that they do. And in terms of, I mean, this is me speaking, not them, but in terms of hierarchy of responsibilities, probably debt advice first and then pension wise second. But then they do a whole lot of other stuff as well. They commission a lot of it out to third parties for a lot of the debt advice stuff. They're using external charities or commercial organizations that work with people to deliver the debt advice. And that's absolutely critical. And that's the kind of stuff the financial services industry just mostly doesn't touch. It's not the world we live in most of the time. The pension-wise stuff, they've done a really good job on all of that and offering an impartial guidance service. Everybody that uses pension-wise says that it was a good thing that they did it, but hardly anyone's using it. And there's still not nearly enough people using pension-wise. So that's the challenge they're working on. So yeah, I did that review over a few months last summer. I guess the headline for me is that for a long time, the money advice service, the predecessor to MAPS, and then in the initial year or so, the MAPS existed before I started looking at it, they weren't using the money effectively. They weren't doing a good job. I think mostly they are now. I've saw a huge transition. So for anyone that's listening to this thinking, oh, well, MAPS is just a waste of time and money, I would very happily take issue with them on that. I think they are doing a lot of really good stuff. And I think the organization has been through a huge transformation in the last couple of years and was well on the way to being a pretty efficient organization. And I just came along and sort of pointed to a couple of things that I think perhaps they could do a bit better. But I was pretty encouraged with what I saw there. And it was clear from your report that there had been significant change already. I definitely took that away from having read through the high level stuff in your report. I was quite interested in the use of budget because I think, as you highlighted in the report, they'd sort of underspent versus that 175 million budget. I guess it's interesting and clearly we should recognise there were exceptional circumstances in the last couple of years that might have made it the spending of that budget different than it might be in normal times in inverted commas, whatever that will mean in the future. And I guess that spending is all to do with, well, staffing, but provisions to help people. It's not spending that's directly linked to the engagement with the service. Is that right? I think a couple of things to highlight there. One is They made an assumption about what the demand for debt advice would be going into through 2020. But they had to do all their planning before the furlough scheme was announced. 
And what then happened was the government effectively moved the goalposts and threw a load of money at everybody that meant the crisis debt advice stuff that MAPS anticipated actually never emerged and then it never manifested itself because mostly people got through 2020 and 2021 without the crisis that MAPS anticipated. So having asked for extra money, they then failed to spend it because the demand never materialized. And so, like, you know, you can cut them a bit of slack on that. and It wasn't great, but that's what it was. But I think the other interesting thing with MAPS was they had quite a lot of turnover at the executive level, which meant that to a greater extent than I think would objectively be considered ideal, the non-exec team, the chair, ended up taking quite an involved hand in the way the business was being run and what was being planned. And Hector Sanz, the chairman, is a really high quality individual. I've got a huge respect for him. And he really helped carry them through a period when they had to change their chief executive and they had to change a couple of other senior personnel as well. But as a consequence, you had the people who were not responsible for the delivery doing some of the strategy stuff. And that, I think, that then creates a risk that things are not going to play out as you expect. And I think, again, they've moved on from that now. They've got a stable team in place. And so, again, looking better for the future, I think. And what does it really look like, aside from the debt advice piece, if you look, talk about the pensions and investment piece, is it online guidance, online calculators? Is it phone lines, helplines sort of thing? What is the form does it take? No, good question, Dan. So not so much the latter, more the former. So it, guidance, tools, and information, rather than as soon as you get into any kind of personal one-to-one interaction, things get very expensive. I mean, delivering pension-wise advice, delivering debt advice is pretty expensive and takes up quite a bit of their budget. So for more general financial capability stuff, it's not personalized stuff. It's scalable solutions or what they try to deploy. And a few years ago, their predecessor, the Money Advice Service, spent tens of millions of pounds, I think, trying to create a really strong brand and trying to do lots of advertising and trying to get people through the door. It just spectacularly failed and they wasted a huge amount of money. So MAPS, I think, has learned from that and they're not trying to replicate that now. There is a very interesting dynamic there, though, isn't there, which sort of comes back to the two angles to engagement piece. So you've got MAPS, which has information and resources, mostly at a fairly generalised level, though, with some sort of direct individual support being linked through there. And I guess in that model individuals need to take a bit of initiative. So they either need to go via the MAPS website and find some experts to speak to or go direct to an expert via a company. Do you see that being the sort of right long-term balance or do you think that actually individuals might need more of a push than the current system gives them? I think probably in a lot of cases, people do need a bit more of a push. I think the other element of the equation we've not talked about is other stakeholders who are willing to play a role in delivering solutions. So just to use one example that's close to home is my former colleagues at Hargreaves Lansdowne have been doing a lot of work around financial resilience and trying to come up with a set of tools and measures on that. Again, talking to MAPS and hearing from them at first hand, the way they work with banks They recognize the social value in delivering solutions to people that are not simply about generating profits for their shareholders. And so MAPS try to play a coordinating role in that, trying to provide them with what works best kind of information to say, well, look, High Street Bank with 5 million quid to spend on helping people with their financial capability. This is how you can most effectively use your money. That's a really important part of the equation as well, is using the private sector money that is willing to try and help be part of the solution. It's a really interesting landscape when you lay it all out there, isn't it? You've got 
the investment sort of platform providers, you've got the banks, you've got maps, you've got the government, you've got individuals, you've got even employers sort of potentially in there as well as a sort of stakeholder. It's a complex terrain. I mean, to ask a sort of a blunt question, how far away is that from what you would design with a blank sheet of paper? <laughs> if that makes sense. It's a good question that I'm not going to answer because I think I'd kind of tell if you look, we are where we are. Yeah, fair enough. We have the society we do. I like this country. I like the complexity of it. I like all the mistakes we make, but it is what it is. And we are where we are. So we just got to try and make the best of it. And I think I look at organizations like MAPS or LCP or whoever. I see businesses just trying to help be part of the solution for people's lives. And that's okay. And hopefully further evolution as time goes on to help individuals that perhaps have less access currently to some of those support lines. So the only thing I'd add to that, I think it's really interesting then when you get into the political space and you look at people like John Glenn in the Treasury or Guy Opperman in the DWP, who do have a responsibility to try and, these guys are junior ministers, there is a limit to what they can do, but they can put a little bit of a finger on the scales and try and nudge things in a particular direction. I was listening to Guy Opperman earlier today, talking in a parliamentary debate about what they're going to do next on auto-enrolment and the plan about when they will implement the 2017 review and extend auto-enrollment down from 22-year-olds to 18-year-olds. These are interventions the government can make to try and help deliver solutions for people. And something else Guy's been working on is simplifying the annual statements that people get from their pension provider. And something the industry's had mixed feelings about at times, I think. I would argue, like the pension dashboard, things that will actually make it easier for people to help themselves. And so the government definitely has an important role in nudging us in the private sector in the right direction. It's a good answer in a way. It's a very pragmatic answer. And I guess reflecting, it's easy to get into conversations in the industry, sort of policy conversations where you're like, oh, they should do this, they should do that. Imagining somehow that there's a kind of president of the world or whatever who has the power to actually do that. And I guess as someone yourself who's been a lot more involved in this, presumably you realize that just doesn't exist. It is just all about these little incremental changes. How can we make it slightly better, shift the incentives, do a little bit with the limited power that any one sort of person has? Absolutely. And again, I'm going to come back to the conversation I had with your your colleague, Steve Webb, when we were talking about 2010 and the formation of the coalition government. And he was making the point that, look, I don't know if you remember those few days after the general election in May 2010, when no one had properly won. And it looked like it was probably going to be a conservative government. But there was a brief conversation about whether Gordon Brown could pull together a coalition of all the other minor parties. And the Liberal Democrats sort of fairly quickly threw their lot in with the Conservatives and said, yeah, you know, we can put a coalition together. Because Steve made the point, we were still in the teeth of a financial crisis at that point. 2008 had only just happened. And there was a responsibility to create a stable government and just to get on with getting stuff done. And then you look at where Theresa May was in 2017 after the general election when all of a sudden she had no political power and she had no stability and no power to get anything done. Or John Major in the dying days of his government, having that political capital and the capacity to act, which Tony Blair had in spades in his first two parliaments, that kind of stuff does matter. Being able to push stuff through parliamentary time, getting legislation on the books, it doesn't happen by accident. I'm really keen, Tom, to return to some of your experience, I guess, from the provider side. So you mentioned all these different stakeholders and the one we haven't discussed, as you said, in much detail is providers, not just on the subject that we've been focusing on in relation to the sort of MAPS discussion, but just more generally, really, really interested in your experience of how investor behaviour and engagement has changed over the time that you were involved. I think we're making good progress. 
the FCA introduced retirement pathways to help people make the transition from accumulation to decumulation on their pension. Here are some investment solutions that might be right for you if you fit into this box, which on the face of it was a really good idea. And so that, again, is trying to nudge people in a particular direction and say, look, if we leave this up to you, you'll probably get it wrong or you'll just end up in cash or something like that, which is perennial fear of the FCA these days. The drawback with it was that they were very prescriptive about how it should be introduced. And I know a lot of pension providers took the view that, look, if you've just given us a bit of flexibility about how we communicate it with our customers, we know our customers better than you do. So we could have done a better job than the customer journey you've imposed on us, FCA. So it's a bit of a good answer, but Hargreaves Lansdowne, Best Invest, a couple of firms I've mentioned already, and any other business, they know their customers better than anybody else, and they're more likely to be able to communicate with them effectively. And I'm just going to stay with the regulator because I think what they're now talking about with their consumer duty and with their investment strategy papers that they put out in the last couple of months, I think the FCA is now becoming more accommodating towards those investment businesses being able to communicate effectively with their customers and deliver solutions that will help their customers get good outcomes. I think organically it has been happening. If you go back over the last 10 years, it is getting wider and deeper. But I think the regulator has a really important role to play in creating the context within which all of that happens. That strikes me as quite an important point, actually, where the regulator lands up on that and how they end up sort of doing that. Because I suppose it's easy to say, that those firms know their customers the best, but of course they are motivated by profit, which isn't necessarily always aligned with the investors. And that might be why the regulator says, well, hang on, that's why we need to be a bit more interventionist and a bit more specific so people know what's going on. But then, yeah, that ends up in a bad place because it's just over-engineered regulation and takes ages sort of thing. So I guess settling that one in the right place strikes me as quite important. Definitely. And it's an erratic journey. It's not a straight line. It's important to remember that. We make progress, we go sideways, we sometimes go backwards. We've talked about some of the more esoteric contemporary investments people can make and how they've been promoted across social media in the last couple of years. The pendulum can swing too far in particular directions at times. And then the FCA has to kind of reach out and drag it back and say, no, actually, we're going to impose some restrictions on advertising of these kind of investments, which is what they are now doing. And that would be good. But what can we harness that's good out of that? There was a couple of million people predominantly young adults, people who've been quite hard to reach on an investment message, who are showing an appetite for investing their money outside of a bank account where they're getting really poor rates of interest and trying to do something constructive with their money. That's great. Let's see what we can do to build on that. We just have to keep trying to move forward, however erratically. It's a really good point, isn't it? The risk you're worrying about varies a lot as well, because the risk might be they go into cash. The risk might be they put it all into meme stocks and are punting it around. Another risk is they get scammed. So it's such a variety of risks. But I just remember, was it last year, we did a clubhouse session, didn't we, where we were trying to say really sensible things about investing. It was a bit of an experiment. We had a sum total of six people in our clubhouse room. Just next door, there was a room full of like crypto people. It was like 600 people or something in the <laughs> crypto room. So people want to listen to it. It is what it is. So something else that has also really interested me recently is that connection of how shareholder capitalism works and the relationship between the retail investor at one end, because mostly people go through collectives these days. Some people own shares directly, but most people don't. And all those pension scheme members are mostly in collectives. And the relationship between the individual at one end of the chain and the target end company they're investing in at the other end of the chain and how that's intermediated by a platform and a fund manager and a custodian 
and then there are voting decisions being made on behalf of that retail investor that that retail investor is probably not even aware of. And I'm really interested, I've been looking at a business recently that is trying to reconnect those two ends of the chain and find ways to rekindle that relationship between the person saving £50 a month into their pension scheme here and the stocks they own through that pension scheme over here and the decisions that get made with those stocks and how that, whether it's ESG issues or executive remuneration issues or whatever, to say, look, you should have a voice in all of this because that's how it always used to work. And without that voice and that connection, I'm not sure shareholder capitalism actually works that effectively. It's back to the engagement point, I think, isn't it? If if you have almost a sort of wall between you as the individual person with the happens to have a pension scheme that you haven't really ever engaged in, as you say, invested via a collective fund, the manager making all the decisions, and you don't even know what's inside that fund. But the minute you start saying, well, actually, do you know what's inside that fund? Your fund holds this much in this company. You suddenly say, well, hold on a minute. I'm not sure I want my money in that particular company. And that's when you start getting the sort of emotional reaction. And that leads to far more engagement, I think. Correct. Exactly. So a good example, that Make My Money Matter, I've done a reasonably good job, I would say, of getting engagement on that and trying to make exactly that point. Absolutely agree. That's one of the ones I've been looking at. I'm really, really encouraged and impressed by what they're trying to do there. I think they're absolutely right, Dan. Yeah. Cool. Tom, trends to look out for or big announcement, things we should be watching out for in this whole space over the next sort of year, couple of years? I'm going to give a really wishy-washy answer to that question. I think more of the same. I think keep watching the regulator. I think they're setting the temperature on a lot of this kind of stuff. We will hear more from the DWP around workplace pensions and work there. I'm struck by, we've heard some stuff from the Treasury, but it's been more around productive finance, getting long-term money invested in infrastructure projects, that kind of stuff, which is probably of less interest to those retail investors we were just talking about. But again, I was interested to hear Guy Opperman this morning talking about if we can get to the point where my pension scheme that I'm a member of through my employer over here is investing in that community project in the town I live in over here, That's a good thing, isn't it? So it's encouraging to hear politicians talking about that kind of stuff and wanting to try and make that thing happen. As we've talked about, whether they can make it happen or not is another matter. So a big focus on, I guess, connectivity in a sense, hopefully at least over the next few years. Absolutely. That's a good way of putting it, Mary. Yeah, I think connectivity is what we need to look for. When you say regulator, Tom, just quickly, do you mean the FCA or TPR or both or everyone? Mostly FCA. I think, good question, Dan. So yeah, it's partly TPR. I mean, they've explicitly and publicly expressed an intention to work more closely together, to be better synchronized. They've put out papers showing how much more synchronized they're going to be. It still feels like it's not entirely happening, but I think maybe it's just from where I'm sitting. It feels like the FCA set the agenda more than TPR, but maybe that's just the world I live in. Maybe you guys would see it differently. A bit, yeah, actually. Yeah, it is interesting because I suppose we're probably a bit more focused on TPR, but we do see that little break point in between the two, obviously, because our clients will often invest in funds which are more under the remit of the FCA. And so you can really see a break there. Good example recently, stuff like climate disclosures, that sort of stuff, where clients are being told to do one thing, but they're dependent on managers who, if they're under a different regulatory regime, it's never going to work sort of thing. So yeah, you do see that crossover. Absolutely right. And that's the kind of area where there needs to be a consistent set of disclosure requirements and record keeping and measurement and so on right across the spectrum. And unfortunately, coming back to a point you made earlier on, we do have quite a fragmented financial system, which doesn't make that kind of stuff easy. 
Tom, we're coming towards the end of our episode now, and I'm really keen to know what the one thing is that you'd like the listeners to take away from today. I'm going to come back to the point you've just made, Mary, which is I think it is all about engagement now. But how that engagement manifests itself and what that good engagement looks like is going to vary from institution to institution and client cohorts from one to the next. So there is no one size fits all to that question. But finding that right blend of defaults of scalable mass communication, of personalized communication, finding that effective engagement that helps people to make the critical decisions more effectively themselves. To me, that should be the focus of attention. Right. Yeah, no, that's come through. That's come through really strongly, I think, through the conversations. That's great. And Tom, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? Just, it's not actually that hard. Just get started. I mean, it's like a lot of things in life, isn't it? Just don't be frightened. Baby steps and ideally do a bit of homework first. But I think a lot of the time, the things we could do in life but don't quite get round to it because we're frightened of that elephant, you can just get started in small steps. And I think that's the critical thing. Excellent. Good message to end on. Tom, final question from me. Do you have any recommendations for our listeners? Yeah, they should listen to the Financial Services Unplugged podcast by Tom McPhail. Nice. (laughs) Shameless plug. I love it. (laughs) Excellent. We will link to that, of course, in the show notes. Thank you. Brilliant. Well, Tom, it's been a great conversation today. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. And that's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. But join us again next week for another discussion. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.